0: This is Fuse and Focus
1: Fuse FM's
0: flagship news show. and welcome back to Fuse and Focus. I'm Rebecca, and today I'm joined by Jessica. Hello. <laughs> Jess. Hiya. And Serafina. Hello. And today's show will feature an independently recorded segment by Peter in which he interviews students involved with the Nancy Out campaign. Aside from the campaign, this episode will focus on the disparity among ethnic minorities and vaccine uptake rates and students having a less valuable experience. First up is Jessica with a story on ethnic stratifications regarding the COVID vaccine.
2: Yeah, so um, last week the Queen kind of came out and voiced her support for the vaccine and basically suggested that hesitant citizens should refocus their attention on the wider societal benefits rather than indulging in their own self-interest. And this comes after preliminary findings from a hospital trust in the Midlands that showed a striking disparity in the vaccine uptake amongst ethnic minorities. And the figures are really shocking. So they found that 71% of white staff at the University Hospitals of Leicester NHS Trust um, received the vaccine. And for South Asian staff, this dropped to 59%. But for black staff, this was astonishingly just 37%. Um, So, obviously, vaccine hesitancy and denial has been around um, since vaccinations themselves began. And uh, the history of vaccinations kind of highlights this recurring pattern, which shows um, when trust in the state is low, vaccine hesitancy is highest. So this kind of gives an insight into the disparity. I mean, there are so many examples of state violation and manipulation of ethnic minorities to make medicinal advancements. For example, the syphilis study in America, the fake hepatitis B vaccine in Pakistan, um, and just a general lack of trust that results from pharmaceutical practices experimenting on poorer nations um, before introducing these products into advanced nations. I mean, just last year, a French doctor controversially suggested um, trialing vaccines in Africa instead of Europe and Australia. So it all this all illustrates where the where these fears of unequal healthcare and distrust in the state by ethnic minorities stems from but with the with the efficacy of the vaccine increasing with literally every new study that comes out and the mortality risk from Covid-19 among ethnic minority communities being almost double that of white British patients this clearly represents a really pressing concern and it could have a really negative um, and disproportionate impact on ethnic minorities so my question is how do you think the government should overcome this issue because it seems like the trust has already been lost so draconian measures such as mandating the vaccine will probably only increase anxiety levels further and raise ethical concerns and just exasperate distrust in the state overall Um, but of course it's such a significant issue so what do you think
0: I think that's kind of a loaded question because it's hard to know how exactly the government should respond uh, to a crisis like this. I mean, the only thing I can really think of are our campaign, like awareness campaigns. Um, I feel like recent campaigns and targeted ads have been a bit sort of dystopian. Um, If people think of uh, those ads, that say, look this person in the eyes and tell them your social distancing, blah, blah, blah. I think if anything, that's more fear-mongering and makes people feel more skeptical. Um, So it's really tough on how to address these concerns and gain the public's trust again, especially if it's ethnic minorities or people who already feel disillusioned by the government.
3: Yeah, I think with the the idea about information um, and how that's kind of spread, you have to look at it in different ways. I think with the ethnic minorities, there's going to be a higher chance that people, uh, you know, either struggle with getting online, they struggle with reading English uh, adverts and stuff, and um, but also just the way that they receive information. So I know it's a bit of a meme, um, but it is very true that you get these kind of like Indian family group chats where information is sent um, onto these group chats that is just completely wrong. So like, I, my don't know if I need to disclose this I'm my mom is Indian and she's in one of these group chats with her family and some of the stuff they sent on there these are all like middle-aged quite well educated people and yet they're sending stuff on there that's like you know if you if you breathe like boiled water in it'll get rid of coronavirus and stuff um because they just kind of they get like spread around all these group chats on whatsapp and it is a massive meme on the internet but I do think honestly people do end up getting their source of information from there and if you're getting conspiracy theories spread on those group chats and then a the whole family is kind of believing in them that's going to stop people getting the vaccine and stuff like that so and they might not look at those adverts that Rebecca was just talking about and and see that as applicable to them um, or they might not see them or you know it might not kind of hit in the way that it's supposed to um, so it's just like a question of communicating it more efficiently I think and trying to dispel some of those those rumours. I think that on, on the other hand of that, you get the the other side with Twitter and how they're responding
4: to the vaccine. You know, you're having these jokes about boiling water and that's not really a joke. They're people are taking it as fact. Then you get other ones that are like, well, if you've ever been to here and drunk this, then you can take the vaccine. We've been to this club and drunk out of that. You know, there's all these different memes going around. And then what has been stemmed probably from fear of taking a vaccine has just become a big joke on Twitter and meme accounts spreading like these anecdotes about what the vaccine has in it and be like oh he's fine he's fine and yeah I guess there is some disparity between people who don't actually have fear about it they just want to make a joke about it compared to people who actually do have genuine fears about taking the vaccine
0: uh Uh, you know do you know how your mom's relatives feel about the vaccine and whether they're planning on taking it
3: I think most of them are planning on taking it as I said you know a lot of them are kind of uh, educate themselves on it and like you know doing this properly but I think it's with members of the older generations as well who maybe don't have as much access to the internet or don't sort of know how to access the right sort of information. They just kind of take, I don't know, I don't want to generalise about like all old people and stuff, but I do think there is a bit of a gap there with, with the way that people use the internet. Um, but yeah, there's not, there's not that many sort of older people in my family, but um, I know from other people's families that they are a bit hesitant about about the vaccine in the older generations.
2: But what do you, what do you think makes it so um, divisive by ethnicity? That's what I find really interesting about it. I mean, the fact that 71% of white British people, and this is just within a hospital as well. So th- these are doctors and nurses, well-educated people. And 71% of white British haven't um, are receiving the vaccine. And that drops to 37% for the black staff. Like, do you have any opinions on why why you think that is? I well, think the media have a massive role to play in that because in the news we've seen
4: Captain Tom get his the Queen, like Dolly Parton, all white public figures going, hey, get the vaccine. I've not seen many people from, you know, ethnic minority groups like their celebrities getting the vaccine and being as you know shouted out about in the media as that. So it kind of again puts that, you know, the vaccine safe for the all these white people, but you don't see the same emphasis on other you know other communities and yeah, it doesn't really matter to me if captain tom i know he's um died but i know he got the vaccine but like dolly part it's like that's amazing but you know who else is getting it and it doesn't give me more confidence just because she's had it
3: i think in terms of the the hospital staff that's what kind of surprises me because you would expect hospital staff to know that a vaccine would work um and i'm almost just wondering if it comes down to age brackets um because obviously, if most of the staff that are ethnic think minorities in the hospitals are younger they might not be eligible for the vaccine yet and then you could bring in ideas about the fact that um, the coronavirus is more targeting older gen- members of the public um, but also ethnic think minorities so if you combine those together there might be more people sort of dying of it if from ethnic minorities so there's going to be less people in that age bracket who are ethnic minorities who are alive to get the vaccine. That sounds kind of really morbid, but I'm just trying to spitball on ideas here. Um, I'm also thinking it could be something to do with like communities if, um, again, this sounds really generalizing, but if you've got like a lower income minority, ethnic minority family, they might be more kind of in touch with their wider family and see that as more like a closer knit community than a white middle-class family might, uh, just because of the way society works these days. Um, <laughs> but, you know, if Say one member of that family kind of gets taken in by a conspiracy theory that might spread throughout the rest of the family um i don't know i'm i really don't I, you know need some more data and stuff but i'm just trying to think of reasons i think jessica
0: you also mentioned that if there's a mistrust in the government then people are less likely to uh take a vaccine um and i think ethnic minorities have more reason to mistrust the government uh because they don't feel as represented by them
3: yeah, I think minorities are also historically uh, majority Labour voters. So the fact that we've got a Tory government might just be putting them off. They might just be, you know, they don't want anything to do with the government. If the government says it's good, they're going to be like, no, I, you know, it could be something to do with more historical voting patterns as well.
0: Jessica, based on your research, what would you say an appropriate response from the government would be?
2: Um, I don't think mandating the vaccine would very good even though a lot of previous vaccines we have have been mandated um but with the coronavirus one it seems to be really the environment that it's obviously being given out into is it seems to be really different to previous vaccines i don't know to be honest i think looking at it theoretically it would be using sort of nudges and information and encouraging behavior change through changing social norms within the communities Um, like artificially adjusting these norms to reflect um, uptake of the vaccine. But I know that community leaders have been doing that. A lot of um, religious leaders have been trying to encourage uptake and um, publicising them having the vaccine, and it doesn't really seem to be having much impact. Um, So, yeah, I really don't know. I think it's a really interesting issue, and it's a really pressing concern because... Both because of how effective the vaccine actually is in stopping mortality um, and how uh, disproportionately affected ethnic minorities are. But yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see how the government copes with it. Jess, you want to talk us
0: through the BBC article on a subpar university experience?
2: So, yeah, uh,
4: recently a university in the UK has been told to compensate a student £5,000 um, and their argument is that for lost teaching time during the first COVID-19 lockdown. So, I mean, a lot of us have felt a lot of distress and struggled with the transition to online learning. And this has been seen in the amount of complaints sent to the Office of Independent Adjudicators regarding concerns over rent payments and accommodation and the disruption to learning, especially being off campus and not having the blended learning experience, which was promised in September. So... Those on practical-based courses, they've been extremely disruptive because you've not been able to go and do practical labs. Um, I know I have a friend who does optometry and they're only allowed in once a week and it's just really disrupted how they're learning. Um, so you can see this massive interruption in learning. Um, and people are saying it's not it's not right and they want, they want to be compensated because, I mean, linking back to what Nancy was saying in our interview last week, students are seeing themselves as customers to the university. And if they're not getting the standard of education that they were promised, then they will want compensating. And this is what some students have been doing. So other um, students that have been affected by this are international students. Um, one medical student uh, had fees of thirty eight thousand and they are one of the people that has complained as well and had some refund. Um, so, yeah, it seems to be it's very selective. I think I read a statistic that one out of 30 people would get um. A refund or someone would come back to them. Um, so I guess it's not really looking like you've got a high chance of getting any money back, but people are still doing it. But the Office of Independent Adjudicators have actually concluded that students have not been affected academically, which is really interesting when talking to especially people in our news group, people you know that I live with, when it's really difficult to do on- online learning. Um, Linking again, back to the interview with Nancy, she also said that more money had been spent this year on transitioning from in-person to online teaching. And again, this really shocked me because you would think I'm not going to, I'm not using the buildings, I'm not using any of the lighting, I'm not using any of the facilities um, that I would normally be using, such as the library that often. Obviously, they've reduced capacity. But actually, this expense has gone on to dongles and things, which obviously are necessary but I would say that my university experience is severely different to what it was when I was in person. And I would say that it's not kind of lived up to the standards of the 9K tuition fee. Um, So yeah, uh, University Manchester groups have been set up. So for example, the 9K for what is a campaign um, for tuition to be lessened to around the same amount as Open University, which is what our online university experience is being compared to, because obviously Open University is all online and we're all online right now. So that is kind of a contentious issue because is it a government matter to reduce fees or should the universities be getting involved? Should students be campaigning for this or is it completely out of reach for students to be able to change? Um, So it's a really interesting issue because obviously this £5,000 that's gone to the student, why only one student? Because if you think there's 40,000 students plus at Manchester, think of all the other universities, that's one tiny, tiny refund you know, compared to £38,000 from one international student, five grand back isn't going to make a massive difference. So it is interesting. And they have said that if you do have a complaint, go to your university first and not this Office of Independent Adjudicators, because I think they're just overwhelmed with the response they've been getting and they want to shift the blame somewhere else and get universities involved. But I think from everyone's experience trying to contact the university, it's um, pretty lackluster to say the least and how they respond to student complaints. So Yeah I think my question to you guys is do you feel like your university experience since coming back and learning in a pandemic has been severely disrupted and what do you think about being compensated or refunded?
3: Can I just ask what university was that refunded? It's not being stated. stated. Because I think I I think I read somewhere that it was like the uni wouldn't be able to refund because in theory they've done everything they can to provide the standard of education because obviously they can't do anything about the pandemic but if they've been trying their hardest then there's no reason that they would to refund because everything that they they said in that in their contract to us has been fulfilled um so i'm I'm wondering if that university maybe hasn't done the best job of like converting to online or something um and that might be why that one student got the money back but i think our, our uni because nancy was saying again in her interview with us last week that they have tried everything i'm not sure we would be able to get much money back which sucks because, as you said, we haven't had the same experience at uni. You know, it is very difficult to sit in a room and just do reading on a laptop for hours on end and never see anyone, that is difficult.
0: I also wanted to ask, Jess, you mentioned the claim that uh, they said there wasn't a significant difference in teaching and learning um, throughout the transition to remote learning. Do you know how they came to that conclusion, whether it was based on any substantial research or? How they deduced that information?
4: I think it was primarily based on the fact that they had seen. So as Serafina was just saying that the online learning, you know, I, I, they used to say in first year, like come to the lectures because listening to the podcast recordings isn't enough. You have to be there. And um, so if you compared that kind of statement to what's happening now, where it's like no, it's fine. You're online. Don't you know? It's it's all good. That is a questionable thing. How has it gone from not being enough to suddenly it's completely fine and we should be paying the same tuition fees? But I think what their argument is, is that we're still getting lectures, we're still getting seminars, we're still having readings, we're still learning, we're still on the course, um, you know, lecturers still need to have the technology to be able to give these, uh, to do like Adobe Spark presentations or, you know, set online workshops, activities, etc. So I think their argument is that, well, we're doing as best we can, and you're still getting the education you have paid for, you're still on the course, you're still going to leave with a degree, therefore, you're, you're fine, It's you're getting teaching, but... I think in, for me, um, especially when you look at the no disadvantage policy you had you know, last summer, and then now we have nothing. I would say the pandemic's got a lot worse now, nearly a year on. It's really affected a lot of students' mental health and everything. So it feels like a little bit of an insult when they're saying that we haven't been academically um, like disadvantaged by the pandemic um, through online learning, because I would argue that we definitely have, and it's not a
0: retreat, as the University of Manchester the other week. Yeah agree with that. I think it was very out of touch to make that claim. Um, and I remember last year, uh, there was a lot of outcry about 2020 graduates and people saying that this was the generation that was really gonna suffer from the pandemic. Um, but then I feel like 2021 graduates and current first and second years are really being overlooked. Uh, because last year's graduates, they only had to endure the pandemic during higher education for a few months towards the end. And they had a no disadvantage policy. Whereas for us, it's been over a year um, of our degrees and we don't have a no disadvantage policy. So it's really built up uh, and it's, it's gonna be difficult for current students. Um, I think we have been largely overlooked and um, yeah, people aren't taking seriously how much more difficult it is to, to be motivated and to be as high achieving when you're doing remote learning and don't have access to all the same uh, resources that you'd normally have.
3: Yes, I think all of these lawsuits and what of the IUS, what was it? Uh, OIA. OIA was saying <laughs> that they're focusing on the university's provision and they don't really take into account the fact that the pandemic's had an impact on the student themselves, which is going to impact their learning. Like, the, obviously, the uni can do all they can, but if the student themselves is struggling because of the pandemic, their education is going to be affected by that. And that's not like you you can't put a price on that, I don't think. I think that they have to take into account. I think that's why the disadvantage policy was good because it took into account that, okay, the uni are trying to give us all they can, but at the end of the day, it is the wider circumstances that are going to affect your learning as well. And so that was why it worked because it took that into account, but now we don't have that. It's it's just like, because they've given us everything they can in terms of content, they automatically assume that everything else will fall into place When that's not true. The pandemic does affect us like personally as well. I think especially for those
4: people um, who haven't like returned to uni as well, it's difficult if you're stuck in your bedroom at home. Like it's just a really different experience.
2: Yeah, and I think um, because I'm I'm a master's student, so I and I didn't do my undergrad at Manchester. So I just started in September. And I think the 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 way that it's impacted me and I know how it's impacted other people on my course as well, is the fact that it's been you you definitely suffer from a lack of social communication with your cohort and um obviously that's in terms of just informal conversations but also um there's a lot of there's a lot less information that um you receive when you're not in contact with other people on your course and you don't have a set group of friends on your course um and obviously that's really hard for the university to resolve because that's not their fault but I think it it should definitely be acknowledged and it should definitely be um at least attempted to be addressed but just by increasing communication of you know just standard facts that maybe they assume we know but we don't so for example there's there's quite a few things that I didn't really know about until a few months in when I would just be randomly speaking to people um in my seminars and we'd kind of figure it out for ourselves on there but it's it's just that delay and that kind of deficit in certain bits of information I think it would be really useful if they could attempt to bridge that. Yeah and you
0: mentioned that it's it's a struggle for people who are back home and didn't return to Manchester Uh, but even here we're still cooped up in student homes and have been under lockdown for months Um, and part of the university experience is societies, AU, sports, um, obviously nightlife and other things like that but that's not specific to the university but not getting any society experience. That's part of where people get their sense of community from. Um, so that's severely lacking as well. And it's hard to kind of make those connections or feel as socially fulfilled.
4: That's definitely true. And obviously it's part of the university experience, but I guess my question is what, what else could they have done? You know, what, what else could we have done in this situation? You know, you could argue the university have done all they can because we couldn't have gone into lectures. The only other thing would just been to have not, have paused uni and started again. The next you know there was so limited options and they had to act fast and I think that's where the notice of policy doesn't make sense because yes they had to act fast in the summer but it's just progressively got worse um and you know we can see the light at the end of the tunnel with like the 21st of June coming up but that's after you know people in third year now have graduated and finished um so their university experience say with societies or nightlife they might not be in Manchester anymore, so what what have they got left? And that's a really depressing thought. But yeah, I think Rebecca was right when other years. I mean, I I dread to think what being a first year was like is like right now, um, having experienced no societies in person, no nightlife in person, no seminars in person, and lectures in person. You know, you've not got all those fun anecdotes of just seeing someone you know in the street and like on the way to a lecture or going for coffee with someone afterwards and making friends with them. I'm in seminars where I literally know nobody. I've never spoken to them before, but I've just done a group project with them through Zoom. And it's, you just feel very out of touch and a bit, a bit
0: nervous, really, because you don't know how you come across on Zoom. Even this doing Fuse and Focus, uh, the people who just started this year, we've never met um, in person, face to face, which is really surreal if you think about it. Because obviously we feel like we know each other quite well at this point, like Alex and Jessica, but they've never met the team as a committee, um, which is kind of alienating in a way
4: yeah the first night out for drinks as a fuse team will be very fun
0: <laughs> lastly peter interviewed fellow university podcasters who have been active in the nancy out campaign
5: um hello this is peter cardinal and for this week's edition of fuse and focus i am continuing our investigation into the ongoing developments of the nancy out campaign students at the university of manchester are to hold a historic vote of no confidence in our vice chancellor nancy rodwell and several members of her senior team. Campaigners have been granted the right to a referendum between the 8th to 11th of March. Whilst the results of the referendum is not binding, it adds fuel to the fire of controversies which have set the university ablaze the past several months. A number of student groups, including UAM Rent Strike and 9K for Watts have launched a successful petition for the referendum last semester. Students have been increasingly vocal about the various failings of the university's senior leadership team in responding to the fallout of the COVID pandemic mental health issues, institutional racism, and financial inequity. Last week, we had the pleasure of interviewing the Vice-Chancellor regarding such issues, with the purpose of building a bridge between senior leadership and the student body. Today, on the flip side, I'm joined by two second-year students from our university, Frank Anderson and Dylan Bopal Myers, who have recently interviewed two members of the Nancy Out campaign, a 10-minute highlight of which will be added following this interview. Frank's and Dylan podcast is aimed at widening student involvement in the unprecedented referendum and encouraging on its topic debate between students and staff. Hello, lads. It's great to meet you. If you'd like to introduce yourselves briefly.
6: Hi, I'm Frank Anderson. I'm a first year law student, and it's a pleasure to be speaking to you today.
7: Hi, I'm Dylan Bopal Myers. I'm a second year philosophy and politics student, and again, happy to be talking to you.
5: So, um, like I said before we started the recording, uh, I found your podcast really engaging and it was some great work from our first year and second year students really kicking off discussion about the political implications of what's been going on at the university. So, firstly, what was your thinking behind the inception of your podcast?
6: I think the idea first came to us a few weeks back in which the referendum was first announced. And my initial feeling was oh, uh, we've got this vote on our hands now, and my mind harks straight back to 2016 and the EU vote and that referendum and about the way in which people voted on that issue uh, based on lies to some regard. They went and voted based on emotion. And I was quite interested with the way that the Nancy Out campaign launched uh, their material only a few days after the vote. Uh, was mentioned. Um, I I think it was around the 8th of February, maybe, around that time. And I thought what was quite interesting was the way in which I felt students would only be voting on this issue based from snippets that they were producing, snippets which weren't being scrutinised, weren't being checked. And I thought that's why it was quite important that someone tried to interview these people and tried to be think quite critically and engage in critical debate with them about what they were saying. Right,
7: essentially we wanted to ignite a debate, ignite a discussion and get people talking. We we thought there perhaps wasn't enough um, kind of acknowledgement from the university that students should be discussing this issue and really engaging in this issue. Um, I think perhaps the university was almost trying to shy away from it um, but we thought it was really important to Give, give the Nancy Out campaign a platform but also in any way possible try and encourage involvement from, from the students? I
5: think that's two really interesting answers and um, that kind of parallel that was made at the start between the 2016 referendum and the current situation we'll get back to that in um, the later question but um, still kind of featuring on the podcast on the ho- uh, as a whole What knowledge did you gain from the interview conducted with um, the members of Nancy Out campaign that you would like to highlight to our listeners? I think the
6: big things that I'd like to highlight here are the fact that what I've learned is the Nancy Out campaign aren't just a group of students who are being politically active for the sake of it. Uh, In their manifesto, which which I was quite taken aback with when they started to uh, propose ideas like um, electing the positions of faculty heads in the future quite strong changes like that at first i i i i really wasn't too sure and then through talking to them it, it's become apparent that they've actually been in, in uh, talks with academics at this university and they've also been in talks with uh, staff from the ucu the big trade union which helped to organize the strikes last year and i think They were also quite understanding of the fact that they are students. This is something which uh, they don't quite understand. But they took precautionary measures because of that by asking people in the real world who understand these things how to go about change in the future, how to bring about the change that they want. And I thought they were a lot more thorough and a lot more forensic than what I was expecting. Yeah, I'd like to echo what Frank said.
7: I think um, first impressions were that um, maybe these students just saw it, saw this as an opportunity to jump on the bandwagon. It was fashionable to be anti-Nancy, Nancy out. And like, perhaps when when Nancy was voted out, they'd feel like they were successful in their campaign. But in fact, it's the complete opposite. And I think if you listen to the podcast, you can acknowledge that these um, these campaigners, they're very clued up. They know their stuff. They're very politically engaged generally. And Nancy out Al almost acts as just a starting point. It almost acts as the catalyst, voting her out for the referendum acts as the catalyst for the Nancy Out campaign to push on. And like Frank mentioned, um, they wanna push for democratically elected heads of faculty. They wanna encourage student activism more generally, play a more active role in um, the management of the university. And I think that was really impressive and admirable. Admirable.
6: Yeah, and I think what I uh, was quite impressed with was their desire for that wider change and their real belief, actually, in the fact that this could be a start for that wider change. And that is something that I really didn't expect. And not
7: just for Manchester University, but for universities across the country. I think they were saying they have been in contact with students enacting um, in, in, in other student activism across the country, be it rent strikes. I think they, they're very aware that this is an opportunity to seize and that perhaps this could kickstart something bigger on a national level.
5: All right, if we could move on to the next question, uh, which kind of builds on that. Um, Picking up from a discussion posed in your interview, as students, we do not really understand the inner workings of the university. The response from the campaigners was that they gained knowledge through a series of meetings. I'm wondering whether this rivals years of experience within the industry itself. With the campaign proposing that key leadership positions be democratically elected by students and staff and demanding that the board of governors be more representative of the UOM community. How much do students genuinely know about the people they'd vote for during their brief time at university? It was posed in the discussion that few students will be aware of the necessary skills and experience needed to run such a complex and vast institution. What is your opinion on this? And do you truly believe university leadership should be de- democratically elected by students? Quite a big question. Now
6: that, it, 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 it is quite a big question. And it's something that I'm still undecided about. Uh, I think what is good about those sort of ideas and what is good about the idea of students being able to elect people in those positions is it will mark a bottom up approach in the university system. And that's something that the university business model has lacked for quite a few years now. And of course, the reason why that sounds quite far fetched by being able to elect those people is because staff aren't politicians. They don't work for a public organisation. But the point is that they sort of made, which I, I, I began to understand a little bit more, was the fact that it shouldn't be that way. It The point is, is that it shouldn't be a business model. The point is this could be a catalyst for that change in those areas going forward. Uh, and I'm, I'm still unconvinced as to the practicalities of it. I think it, it would be quite strange for staff to have to, uh, pit, yeah, 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 be pitted against each other. Um, I, yeah, I, I did mention to them in the podcast: would this mean uh, staff having to campaign against each other? It's a bit strange, but I started to understand the context of what they were saying, and I don't think voting Nancy out will uh, also mean then suddenly adopting this quite radical system. I just think that perhaps. If the board of directors were to listen to a student mandate to get rid of nancy it would mark a shift and a shift that is closer to altering the business model of universities at large
7: i think what we what i've gained from the podcast certainly is that what's undeniable now is that students need more involvement in the management of universities they need their voices heard more and they need to um, act more on issues i think Perhaps the the idea of democratically electing heads of faculty and um, those in the senior in the senior positions in universities would require perhaps a rethink of what universities actually represent. Is education a public good? In which case, perhaps they should be democratically elected. Of course, universities are run like businesses, and we can't deny that. Is that right? Is there more that can be done? Can us Can we as students maybe enact this change, or is it? Is it beyond our capabilities and I don't I I don't want to say that anything's impossible because I don't think anything's impossible I think it's quite exciting at the moment this feels like the start of something that could that could blow up so it all remains to be seen but I'm optimistic.
5: That's a great answer both both of those and uh, it folds really well into the final question Uh, in in the interview you spoke about whether the university establishment will honour this non-binding referendum vote inside of the voice of the students do you truly believe that this will happen, given the fact that universities are run, as claimed in the podcast, and yourselves, business institutions, delivering a product rather than the preferred institutions concerned with workplace democracy?
6: I, I don't think, uh, I don't think that Nancy thinks herself that she'll have to leave as a result of this vote on her position. I think that's why she's still here. I think that's why she was quite happy to get involved in your podcast, Peter, uh, on Fuse and Focus, I think. And I think that's because she thinks that the Board of Directors won't take that result as, as binding. And I think it's a bit of a shame because I think the bad publicity that this institution has had over the past few months given that bad publicity i think it'll be a great opportunity for this university to take a leading example in an exercise of student democracy and unfortunately i don't think nancy will go as a result of it i think she'll stay but i think it'll be i i I think that will be a shame if, if, if students do uh, want to get rid of it I think it really will be a shame
7: I'd like to say that i think definitely it's hugely important that all the students go out and vote and i'm i personally don't want nancy to stay but there's 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 specific reasons for that and it's not just and i don't and, I, and we mentioned in the podcast we don't want her her departure to be a performative stunt we very much want it to enact real change. And uh, but I think voting Nancy out is the best place to start in enacting that change. And I think it it like as I've said, it should act as a starting point. But yeah, I'll echo what Frank says. I think I'm not optimistic, it all remains to be seen, but it depends on the amount of votes that that come through. I think Nancy is banking on there being a low turnout, which would mean that there's not enough of a mandate essentially for the Board of Governors to back yeah. the vote. And I think we as students can change that. We as students can we can kick her out, essentially. We can get rid of her. If enough of us vote, then the Board will have to listen to us. So I think it's it's, it's vital that everyone goes out and votes in this referendum.
6: I think, yeah, and, 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 I, and I would just like to add that uh, this vote is, is obviously the first of its kind in this institution's 200-year history. and. I do think that it is a bit of a shame that we haven't had more transparent and more wider conversation. Um, And yeah, I think it it is a shame that the wider conversation has only met the limits of your podcast, Peter, and ours. I do, I think it would have been better to have a more transparent debate overall, uh, but hopefully the result ultimately will be respected. It is a pleasure today to be joined by Finley Gore and Matty Shannon from the Nancy Out campaign. If you think about the fencing, the racial profiling incident, student mental health, in your mind, uh, it's a question for both Fida and you to answer, but we'll start with you, Matty. Is Nancy accountable for all of those things?
1: Um, So I think kind of two things to kind of emphasise here is that the vote implicates five members of senior management not just Nancy, so it also implicates the Head of Student Experience, um, the Chief Registrar, um, the Director of uh, Learning, so like and we also shouldn't underestimate Nancy's influence as Vice Chancellor, she sits on most boards, she sits on most meetings, so even if she personally isn't responsible or you know it's not just her that did the fences she would have been in a meeting about the fences and she would have been in a meeting about Zach Um, and it was her that lied about Zach on news night Zach being the student who was racially profiled on campus so I think that yes it's not just her who's failed but we shouldn't underestimate how much influence she's had um, and how much power she has.
6: I'm just quoting the first point that's made under your manifesto Uh, which states that in September, the university brought students back to campus on the basis that face-to-face teaching would go ahead, only to cancel it weeks later. This is the first point that's made on your manifesto, but it's a point that applies to every single institution that offered higher education across the country around September time. Everyone cancelled face-to-face teaching. Why should Nancy go? Because of that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess one thing I'd just say is that obviously Manchester was inevitably going to be bad. And in September for COVID cases, we're one of the biggest universities in the country. That's like, you know, that that's quite often publicised by the university. And also just in the way we live, we have a very big concentration of students in Fallowfield, which not all universities have. Some universities have their students spread out over the city. Ours are all concentrated within literally one, you know, square of accommodation within Owens Park and Unsworth. That's where most people live. So it, although yes, it was something that was probably gonna happen at all universities, I think looking ahead, the university could have done more to foresee the outburst of cases that we saw in Fallerfield, um, and taken better measures.
6: What we're quite interested in as well is how intertwined is the Nancy Out campaign with the student rent strike movement? Uh, Of course, both centre on different issues, but ultimately have the difficulties in in securing that 30% rebate proven to be a big driving force in trying to get rid of
8: Nancy? Well, obviously, I am a student on rent strike and I'm involved in the Nancy Out campaign. But I don't think that they're, I think it'd be quite hard to say that they're too... And linked campaigns or anything like that. I think they're more just two symptoms of the same problem, which is how this university is run. And you mentioned earlier that it's it's run by a bit like a business. But when you look at even more, if we take examples of the government, for example, we've got bus strikes in Manchester because that business is making bus drivers go into unsafe conditions for less pay. If we've got a similar thing in this university where they're trying to get money out of students who are being put into unsafe conditions then obviously the problem lies with the fact that it's being run like a business, in a sense. You know, they're two symptoms of the same problem, in my opinion, and that is sort of the marketized business-like um, university model. If Nancy does end up leaving, um, could, could that then just become like more of a
7: performative act and then the existing status quo can kind of like overrule any
8: actual change? I mean, if we've already got students saying that they're going to boycott you um, from their UCAS applications, you've got, I mean, the rent strike campaign is run by first years. So we've at least got another two years of, of being at this university. So if they turn around and do something that we deem performative, are we really going to sit and take, like, take it lying down? We've already shown how engaged first years are in the running of their university and sort of ideas of social justice and workplace democracy, for example. And if they turn around and do something performative, we're going to turn around and go, that's really performative. That's not what we asked for. That's not what we've campaigned for the whole time. So we will just do it again. We will keep being involved in activism. We'll keep being involved in trying to change the university.
7: Post the um, result of the referendum, should um, Nancy be voted out? The decision then goes to the Board of Governors. It's It's not actually binding until the Board of Governors makes the decision. How confident are you that the board will side with the majority?
1: I'm pretty confident that the board will choose to represent whatever the majority is and choose to represent students. Um, particularly, we've already seen the excitement from, you know, not the SU exec, but like staff members in the SU about how, they're excited about this level of student engagement in democracy. So for the board of governors to kind of have this unprecedented level of engagement in the elections and then to turn around and disregard the result I think that would have quite lasting consequences for how people feel like Mm. their vote matters which is something that the SU has worked really hard to build back this year Um, so I think they will make the right decision and they will whatever the majority is I think they'll represent that fairly
6: yeah I guess so but why is Nancy why hasn't she stepped down then there's a referendum that's approaching She knows that she's very unpopular with students and in particular, the students that are gonna turn out to vote. Surely she thinks that her position is still safe. Do you not think?
1: Um, I mean, from talking to the UCU, there definitely is a culture of kind of intimidation um, among the Board of Governors and the Senate and that Nancy and some of the other people implicated in the referendum, Uh, Patrick Hackett's name has come up. who quite often get what they want through the Board of Governors by um, pressurising mm. for it. Um, that's not a popular way to run your your workplace. And the fact that we know that now, um, we means we can, you know, we can put our FOIs, Freedom of Information Requests, if the, go- if the Board of Governors decides not to. Their minutes are made public. The minutes of their meetings are public. So we can ask for them, we can read them and we can, you know, call them to it you know call them into question if they make the wrong decision why um so i think they should know that we're going to be quite closely monitoring what happens when it gets referred just to ensure that nancy can't pressurize and intimidate her way into staying in power um because we know she's done that before
6: have you got a credible source for that i mean you don't have to disclose any names but have you been speaking to people on the board or associated with the board about that, because that's quite, I mean, to say that she pressurises board members into so that they make decisions that go her way. That's quite a statement. Um, We
1: know, yeah, so we know for a fact from speaking to people quite high up in the uh, UCU union, so people even a step above UM, UM-UCU, like the general exec, we know that they have intimidated Senate before. Um, we know this because a third of the people on senate are elected staff members Um, so this is something that that's come up um, and that people have disclosed you know kind of in branch meetings so obviously not going (laughs) to reveal who said this but um, it's definitely something that's come up and I read um, I'm a student ambassador so I'm on the staff net list so I get sent every week Nancy's message to staff and Mm -hmm. there definitely is a level of kind of intimidation and, and gaslighting and she doesn't always write very respectfully to her staff um, so I, yeah I, th- I think we do have quite credible evidence that there has been intimidation at Senate and the Board of Governors before.
6: In the same way that plenty of the people who championed the Brexit vote didn't have an understanding of being able to run a government for example I don't know like a Nigel Farage Can't parallels between this referendum and the EU vote be drawn in the sense that as students, we don't really understand the inner workings of this university. Therefore, although this referendum is a good expression of student sentiment, it shouldn't really be binding. Why is that wrong?
1: Um, So this is definitely something that we also thought, We, we are students, we don't really, and none of the people in the campaign have ever served on the exec before. So we don't really know, how we don't really know how the systems work so what we did is we had a meeting with one of someone who's literally researched for a long long time about democratizing the university we had a really long meeting with him we've had lots of we've had quite a few meetings with ucu about this um, we sent our manifesto to ucu to have a read through um
6: great well finn and matty thank you very much for giving up some of your time of course the result of this vote is not binding but let's hope that whatever the outcome of the student referendum the board of directors will decide to take this result very seriously if the directors are able to enforce the will of students at this institution in whatever form that may be it will represent a leading exercise in student democracy especially during a time in which university culture often gets criticized for not encouraging free speech.
0: Thank you for tuning in and a special shout out to Johnny Hunt for production. That's it for now. You're in focus. Um, Last week, we interviewed Nancy Rothwell and then discussed her prospects on our show. And next week, we will inevitably focus on the outcome of the vote of no confidence in herself as vice chancellor. Today is our last episode preceding the referendum, so I thought it would be apt if we put our last predictions and observations out there. Uh, One of the main things addressed in Peter's clip is voter turnout. Do you think enough students will actually vote?
3: do we know what the enough is what the cutoff point is
0: okay so enough is me being kind of like you know arbitrary but enough to make a statement enough to make the board of governors feel the pressure to actually abide by the vote
4: I think it's very similar to the SU elections at this point where you kind of see it all on social media and you go oh these are who's running for candidates or oh this is what's happening Nancy out and then I mean I know like it's not difficult obviously to vote online but then again you have to remember people are probably like oh nancy's vote was today i've forgotten and you know obviously on the day social media if you follow people who are in first year or are really into the or the Fallfield on campus groups you're going to be bombarded with posts to remind you but if you've completely detached yourself from this side of what's happening on campuses in first year like halls of residence i feel like you're really very d- detached from the vote and not really know when it's happening where it's happening how to vote and yeah probably not bother
3: I think there's 400 people that signed the petition that kind of prompted the referendum but that's not a huge amount considering we have 400 sorry 40,000 students (laughs) and as Jess was saying I think um we probably as a team are very much in this little bubble of people who are engaged with the SU and like the you know kind of you know political side of, of the uni um my uh my f- friend um does did, like didn't really even know that the referendum was a thing you know he'd kind of heard that there was a referendum but wasn't sure what it was what was voting for like he wasn't going to vote in it because he just had no idea what was going on um and the only reason we started having a discussion about it was because we heard somebody at a bus stop saying something about the referendum so if, if it wasn't for that then he wouldn't have had any clue what was going on because you know i wouldn't have explained it um so i think there's there isn't going to be that many people who kind of know what's going on. I think there'll probably be more people who vote in the SU elections this year than there would have been because more people are engaged with the Nancy campaign but I don't think in terms of actual proportions of the student population there's going to be that many.
0: I think it comes back down to a recurring theme we've had on the show about a lack of communication uh, within the university which is you know to be expected when you're at a university this large but It's always a question of communication between and among students, uh, communication between staff and students, between the administration and students. Um, And in this case, it seems like it has been hard to advertise um, the referendum to certain people who might not be as involved. I mean, me and
4: Serafina are having a conversation about how the Nancy Ackipay has actually gone about advertising um, what the policies are on social media and kind of dredging up news from the past about like arms deals and things in the uni and you know Fina sent it to me and I instantly was like oh my goodness what's this and it's like no swipe to the end and you'll see that it's actually dealt with a couple of years ago and it's those kind of tactics you've seen in like Brexit or other governmental um policies kind of re- cropping up in student debates and as I said like this this um, referendum isn't biding she doesn't have to leave if all 40,000 you know it doesn't make a massive difference it's still up to that the board to 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 do what they want to do with this information but yeah I would say some of the tactics and some of the posts are quite sly um and really digging this kind of like we don't like Nancy um and kind of trying to find as much about her that to make students feel that way as possible.
3: Yeah I think the Nancy campaign is very one-sided and you know in in the interests on this show of being m- more impartial um that post that jess was talking about it was about the university investing in uh companies that dealt arms to israel so this was actually something that was dealt with last june um or, or the between june and august anyway um and the uni pulled out of all of that and you know divested from all that at the same time they were divesting from the fossil fuel companies as well um but the nancy Hart campaign uh, presented. The fact that the uni did have interests in these arms deals as a current thing on their social media, and it only took to write to the end where they were like, "Oh, well, you know, they did deal with it. It's it is gone." But it's like one sentence out of the whole post, and at the end, so if people don't swipe to the end of that post, they're not going to see it, and they're going to assume it's a current thing, and kind of that's going to exacerbate the hatred that everyone's got for the the university administration. Whereas actually, it's it's not. That's you know, they are they're kind of twisting things to fit the campaign. perhaps, uh, which I think will probably stir up more emotions in terms of the election rather than kind of the facts that we've seen. Um, again, with some of the articles that Mancunia has been posting, um, there are two sides of it. There is this fact that, you know, Nancy could be seen as a scapegoat for, uh, not sorry, sorry, a representative of the, the university's culture of not communicating very well. And so, you know, she as a figurehead needs to be removed from that. But there's also the idea that getting rid of her isn't gonna get rid of that culture. Um, there are so many other issues going on. Um, so it's just sort of where you fall on there, what, what you think will make the best, the best difference, I think. Yeah, what
0: you were saying about the swiping uh, to the end to find out uh, it had already been dealt with, a lot of this, the information campaigns do feel a bit clickbaity, um, So I'm not sure if some students will feel like that's discrediting to the movement. But we will see in due time, it's coming up. And stay tuned for next week's show because that's when we'll discuss the outcome of the referendum and uh, see how closely they aligned with our predictions. Um, Thank you so much for tuning in. That's it for now, you're in focus. Wait,
7: how
1: do I?